can't believe that you haven't seen it Love it so much you really gotta stream it Let me tell you every line right now I can quote the whole thing since I was 12 Maybe your mom told you no She said she wouldn't give you any money to go And that's why Movies we missed Hey! Welcome to another episode of Movies We Missed. I am your host, Brandon Greenhouse, alongside my lovely co-host, Jane Tiana Hammer. And uh, yeah, we're coming at you live with another episode. Before we get into it, we've been getting a lot of uh, tweets. Um, I've been getting a lot of carrier pigeon messages, actually, which is kind of funny. Um, get it to me how you can, you know. Um, but people are really curious about how they can keep tabs on us, how they can keep in touch with us. Um, we can be found, you know, at Movies We Missed on Instagram, on Facebook. That's our handle at Movies we missed if you want to find us tweet tweet tweeting away on you know an account that's won quite a few uh web centered awards and also we're nominated for a few that are coming up so fingers crossed on those um you can find us over on our tweet tweet twitter um at mwm chat so don't be afraid to um to look into that uh it's what's happening over there is really um it's shocking uh and if you want to you know find out what everybody's talking about then <laughs> take a gander um it is an account that um the government has referred to as um, something to keep one's eye on. Um, so find out why that is and why they can't legally take us down at this at this juncture. Um, we're really good at, you know, towing those lines. And uh, some of Jane's more interesting affiliates have really helped us from the underworld, uh, the underbelly, a dark web of the Internet, keep our keep our, our ranking and keep our position. I think it's known that like, it's always been known that I know people who know people and exactly. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think honestly, and Brandon and I were just talking cause Brandon, you're, you're a CEO of a company. Multiple. Um, um, oh, you're mogul. You're mogul. Yeah. You're you are the Jay Z of this podcast. Don't laugh through it. Say it with I'm, your chest. <laughs> saying it with all yeah, honesty. Yeah, I've got I've got I've got my toes in a lot of a lot of companies. Yeah, that okay. aren't exactly based um, in the states uh, for reasons that are just. It's as I've said to you before. I'm a traveler. I'm a citizen of the world. I okay. have homes in different well, places. I've really. Where are you really a citizen of? Just like legally. My heart and my mind is really okay. where I consider my home to be. That's the thing. Okay. You're going to catch me in, you know, San Tropez on a yacht. Maybe. Um, but when I'm there, I'm still with here who and in with spirit. With what and doing what and with who? It depends. Okay. Maybe, maybe J-Lo and Ben Affleck, maybe. Hanging out with them. Congratulations, kids. They finally did it. 20 years later, you made Benifer become... Uh, reality did the damn thing and some people wouldn't have gone through with it and I will say the road hasn't been linear it no, wasn't no, no. a straight shot to each other but you know what looking at you Julie you know <laughs> that's that's life baby that's life and I support them because as you all know I I mean Jane well is so you don't criminal. know <laughs> I <laughs> oh that wasn't the news I'm sorry no you, you say your thing <laughs> I thought we were going to leave with that. Uh, ben Affleck and I come from the same um, Let them know, hometown. baby girl. They're both from Southie. 
Absolutely. No. We're both you from go park Ca- your car in Harvard Yard. How about that? We're both that? from Cambridge, Massachusetts. We attended the same high school, different times. I was very young. I was much, 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 I was still younger. I was a baby, a little baby. But I was, I've always excelled oh, at math. Oh, child prodigy? Yeah, I've always excelled at math. And rumor well, has it, hunt, they... That hunt is still on for any evidence of that. So I hope Goodwill's not, not doing it right now because you, that's an equation you're not going to find. And there's no photographic well, evidence and, and of Jane being celebrated. It, they changed the details a little bit, but they did write an Oscar-winning um, screenplay about me. What, Spotlight? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is that supposed to mean? <laughs> no, Goodwill Hunt. Goodwill Hunting is based on my incredible math abilities. We talked about this in a previous episode, wasn't? Uh, the Did rumor we? was that Laura that Laura Linney's accent was based on your your accent in <laughs> Mystic River, wasn't it? Your Boston accent. <laughs> Not quite. Not quite. She can't confirm or deny. Academy Award nominated actress Laura Linney is looking at you. As you all have ears and are listening to this podcast, you can tell that Laura Linney and I speak very differently um, in terms of her character in Mystic River and in terms of me and my voice right here, right now. You guys are in different pay pay grades, too. (laughs) You know, I... We we talked about actually a couple weekends ago about how Laura, Laura Linney has never won an Oscar and that That's a shame. is it really is a very upsetting thing that I had come to learn. Brandon has an almost encyclopedic encyclopedic knowledge. Is that how you say it? No 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 no. I do not. I, I do not at all. Of I'm Oscar really, stuff. No no no. I'm like really bad so, actually. First of all, your confidence like I could see it leave your face, Brandon. Because those are big, because those are big words. I I all do right, know. Well, you okay? So you know a lot more than I. I do about the Oscars. Okay. I know almost nothing. I don't remember who won. I know some stuff about the Oscar. I know a lot about actresses that I feel have been robbed. I don't know as much about actors that I feel have been robbed, um, <laughs> but I do know about my actresses. Who are, um, who are some actors, male actors? Uh, I mean, that you feel have been robbed. Male actors. He, he looks so disgusted. No, um, <laughs> he doesn't want to talk about male. Honestly, <laughs> up until up until this this year, he had his rock'em sock'em moment. But Will Smith um, was one that. Bro- <laughs> it's a rock'em sock'em moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is the funniest fucking way I've ever heard it described. <laughs> 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 I'm so sorry, that really worked for me. Oh, thank you, Jane. That was really happy. <laughs> I hate that I'm giving this to you right now, but I no. Give me my flowers while I'm here. <laughs> oh my God, the rock suck a moment. Thank you. I really appreciate this. This is a lot for me. Oh my god, um, cut this. Edit this no, out. No, don't you dare. Leave this in. I want them to know about the comedic genius. Um, so yeah, that that was a person that I thought for a long time. I was like, where's his Oscar? Um, Samuel yeah. Jackson is another person who's never won an Samuel Oscar. Samuel Jackson and I think, doesn't have an Oscar? No, no, he doesn't. And I, I think that it's a travesty that Sam Jackson doesn't have. I an Oscar. think I knew that. Now that you said that out loud, I think I did know that. That is a travesty. I mean, He's Sam a- Jackson should have won the Oscar 
Okay, it's complicated. Samuel Jackson should have won the Oscar for Pulp Fiction. But that oh, was the year yeah, that absolutely. Martin Landau won for Ed Wood, which was like this sort of like one of those career Oscar moments. Um, See, like, you know, I wouldn't know that. This is what I'm saying. Like, this feels encyclopedic to me that so you remember that. Like, I would never. Not actor, but Spike Lee still doesn't. Spike Lee finally won an Oscar for Black Klansman for screenplay, but <gasps> Spike Lee doesn't have a directorial Oscar, that's and I still crazy. think that that's a travesty, too. I do too. remember people talking about that. That's fucking nuts. Yeah, so there are some wild ones. Um, yeah. I got lots of I got lots of actresses for you, baby. You please believe I, I, it. I know, you have a laundry list, but I'm interested in the actors, because I don't think we've ever talked about that, but no, you are... for sure. Um, you are correct that you have many actresses and i agree that haven't gotten their flowers i haven't even been discussed my name hasn't come up once but you have disgusted i know members of the academy with some of your <laughs> behavior and the lobbying really um i'll never forget that spread that you did <laughs> for um, your consideration that that <laughs> melissa leo stunt you pulled um in full for regalia um, for those of you who don't know, just Google Melissa Leo for your consideration and do like a Google image search and it will <laughs> bring you just a lot of joy. Yeah, no, it was, um, yeah, yeah, it's her and like the fur, the fur moment. It's so Isn't good. Isn't she like in front of a pool too? Yeah, there was a couple. She did a full one. She, she got her money's <laughs> worth. I know did. she called her, she called probably up her best Judy and she was like, Hey, I need you to come take some photos for me. <laughs> this is, um, yeah, hopefully it was a gay photographer. I can only hope because I'm sure she was like, this is for the culture. I know who this is going to, I know who this is going to live with. <laughs> it's, or, oh no, just says consider. On it. Consider. Just consider. <laughs> and that was for the, that was the fighter. Oh, it was the fighter. And remember and the one won. where she's... Wait, remember the, the poster, the Consider poster, where she's all in black and she's leaning forward looking at the lot. camera? Like, choose me. Do you remember when she won the Oscar and it was like Kirk Douglas presented it and then she like took his cane from him as they were like walking off the stage? And didn't she say fuck and she was like the only person in the history of yeah. the Oscars to say fuck on stage exactly. or something? Exactly. Anyways. So... So, let's talk about the movie now that we've spent a very long time talking about a million different things, as is our brand. Um, This week, I gave Jane um, a movie to watch. It was the 1948 underrated Alfred Hitchcock classic, one of my favorite Hitchcock films, one of of my, maybe one of my favorite films. I really love this film, Mm. Um, maligned by critics at the time, um, which, you know. I was really surprised to read that after I watched the movie, that, like, yeah, I mean, part of it was the reviews. Part of it, obviously, we'll, we'll get into all of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Why don't you read your synopsis and I'll then we can... I'll read my little blurby blurp. blurp <laughs> and then we'll get right into it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that. All right. Synopsis, synopsis. Here we go. Meet Philip and Brandon, two young high society elites that have just killed their prep school chum, David Kentley. This is partially a thrill kill, but also an opportunity for these two to act out their fantasy of killing a person they deem as intellectually inferior. The dastardly deed is appalling enough on its own, but they aren't done just yet. The murder itself has fulfilled a yearning deep within them. 
Well, within Brandon, at least. He's the mastermind, and Philip is the pigeon-livered friend who lacked the fortitude needed to thwart such a plan. Even after the murder is complete, they've placed the body of their childhood friend into a large oak chest in the center of their living room. It's clear that they are just getting started. They'll, of course, have to get rid of the body, but there is something even more pressing than that. You guessed it. Like any undiagnosed psychopaths, they've got a hankering to throw a post-murder party. But not just any party. This will be an intimate gathering of David's closest friends and family. Even Janet, David's sweetheart, will be in attendance. To up the ante even more, Brandon has decided to forego the traditional dining room table setting in favor of a makeshift buffet-style serving area for guests to nosh from. You guessed it. He wants to utilize the trunk-turned crypt that houses the newly-riggered body of their once friend, David. Brandon wants the people who love David to spend the night wondering where he is while dining atop his tomb. This party will be the coup de grace, the final confirmation of their intellectual superiority over their victim as well as the myriad of guests who will attend. They really think they'll get away with this plan, too. And they just might, if they can keep one particular dinner guest off their tracks. Rupert Cadall, the former prep school instructor from the boys' younger years that Philip worries will be the one man most likely to suspect what they've done. Brandon doesn't disagree with Philip. In fact, this is the very reason that Brandon wants him here. His very presence and cunningness ups the ante tenfold and adds an air of danger to the entire enterprise. Without him here, Brandon is certain that they'd get bored with the other dolts and the affair would go off without a hitch. No guests would be the wiser to the whereabouts of David. That would be far too easy. But... Having someone that Brandon feels is on his intellectual level in attendance will make this game of cat and mouse all the more scintillating. Philip is completely against Rupert being here, and fearful he'll uncover their deed by the end of the night while Brandon is counting on his advanced wit to keep him one step ahead of all the party guests, even the astute Rupert Cadall. One has to be careful in these situations, because in the blink of an eye, the predator can become the prey. Rupert comes in none the wiser to what has unfolded earlier this afternoon, or what is housed within the tablecloth-covered trunk bedecked with candelabras and hors d'oeuvres. But as the night progresses, he begins to sense that everything may not be as it seems with Brandon and Philip. They're acting queerer than usual. Will Rupert figure out the truth behind their appalling actions before he himself gets the rope? More importantly, will Brandon and Philip find themselves fit to be tied? Let's watch as this twine begins the tedious process of unraveling in Alfred Hitchcock's rope. <laughs> I've got goosebumps. It, it veered into Santa Claus territory right at the end. Um, <laughs> I thought it was great. I was, no, you. I was enjoying oh, your oh, celebration. Oh. And then those last couple just, it was, it was ho, ho, ho. And then I was like, she's making fun of me. Oh, Santa Claus territory. I thought, okay, no, I'm not making fun of you. Okay. I was trying to do like a scary, sinister, oh, Santa like, can be scary? no, wait, Santa can be scary, depending on who you ask. Hey, if you roll up to um, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, and part you find, part and you find a Santa s- 
figure in your child's bedroom. <laughs> that can be very scary. I don't know if you guys remember that, but you can go ahead and listen to that episode. It's uh, back around Look, Christmas time. When I was a child, I was always a little bit scared of Santa Claus because my There's mom... There's something a little scary about Santa Claus. My mom also told me something that I didn't find out until I was a grown-ass person was not true, and nobody else's parents told them. My mom told me to keep me in my room because I would sometimes try to get out and get a little peek. And she of told me that if wouldn't. you go out and Santa Claus is like still doing the, the thing and you try and catch him but in presence of that he would take ash from the fireplace and throw it in your face <laughs> and I believe that like, I believe that for far too long and I remember bringing it up to a friend and they were like whoa 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 <laughs> that's not something I've ever heard before and then I asked my, my mom about it and she was like parents- oh stutter stutter <laughs> Well, my parents told me that if you saw Santa Claus, then he you wouldn't get your gifts. Not that he would take ash from the fireplace and slam it in your face. Hot ash in your no, face? No, 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 not hot. Like like the ash, like the stuff that's on the bottom of the fireplace. Like just okay. like, not hot, not hot. But like just okay. like dust, just enough to like, you know, shake you up a little bit and get you back in your room. I don't know, that would bother me. Because then I'd be like, I still got a peek, baby. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess if, I guess Satterbert Weiser, you're in the bathroom probably trying to rinse it out as best you can <laughs> yeah, while he's making his pee. escape. But you got to peek. But the thing is, hot ash sounds a lot scarier. That would probably oh, keep well, me. Well, hot ash, is, that's, that's assault. That's blinding. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. Like, cold ash is still assault. Like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, you slice it. <laughs> yeah, we don't want, we don't want Santee, you know, but I always imagined him angry. Also, I'm black, so Santa Claus was like black in mm-hmm. my house. And so mm-hmm. I always imagined black Santa Claus like grabbing a handful of ash and being like, get your ass out of here. <laughs> and so it was always very urban. So I was always like, it's not gonna be good. Like, let me get out of here. Because I just thought of every other portly black man that I know with like a beard and they tend to, they're not afraid to get gully. So so I was like, Santa Claus is not going to be here for the bullshit. I know that. So like, if he's anything like anybody in my family, he's going to be like, you get your he's ass inspiring away. inspiring fear. Yeah. Yeah. I just imagined like, you know, somebody at like the grill outside and you trying to, <laughs> trying to get a little lick on that barbecue on the rib or something. And they'd be like, get the hell out of here. But like, but with Santa Claus and like a red velvet moment. Yeah. I think like Santa Claus, like I think just like the idea of Santa Claus is scary anyways, because like it's just a stranger entering your house without anybody knowing. I mean, you assume he's coming, but you don't know when it is. You don't know what he's going to do there. Like you put out some milk, you put out some cookies. My dad always had us put out bourbon, uh, which I think think was just a a treat for him. Yeah. Uh, well, so if he's a for him dealing with all those damn presents. Exactly. Oh, please. My mom was my mom was running the show. My dad. Yeah, would he was rap, sitting in the corner. Yeah, wrap one gift and be like, I did it. He's I like, helped. two fingers of bourbon, not one. <laughs> That's what Santa likes. <laughs> Put some bitters in there too. Don't be afraid. Yeah, let's make it a whole no. cocktail. I um, love it. But anyways, back to this movie. Yeah, I had a couple of questions after hearing a synopsis because I was okay. confused. So one of the things you said that um, Jimmy Stewart's character Rupert was an instructor, but I thought he was supposed to be their classmate, and 
I thought that I read when I was doing research that <clears throat> in the play that this movie is based on, mm-hmm. it was he was supposed to be a teacher, but they changed him to a classmate. So I thought he was a classmate in this movie. Am I wrong? See, I thought he was like a headmaster type. Not like the headmaster, headmaster, but I thought he was maybe like the person who like taught them or the person who like, oh, who sort of was like an overseer of them. Like, okay. not full on headmaster. That. But maybe, I, maybe that's just something that I've seen this movie a couple times and maybe that's just something that I've always like that I've always believed and I've stopped sort of like so you may be right it's very possible that I don't know I could have mis- misinterpreted that too because a, a lot of my notes well not a lot but there's a, the, a couple of notes in here where I'm like Jimmy Stewart was not the same age as these guys like why are they prep and, but school also buddies they've like, but they've also grayed <laughs> Jimmy Stewart's hair as well so it's like it looks like they've gone out of their way to age him I mean Jimmy Stewart was 40 years old oh, in this movie I um, thought that was natural I didn't know it may have been he was 40 yeah I, I, mm-hmm. I always it always looked to me like they were aging him a bit um, mm. to sort of like give this story of like him I being like I just that was time but I could be wrong no you could be right too though I mean 40 is not like it's not crazy to be a 40 year old um, he was the house master at not- their prep school <laughs> He was the housemaster. That's what he was, the prep school housemaster, which okay, would mean okay. then that, that he was... That makes a little more sense yeah. than from what I was feeling, because I was like, it does not seem like he's a peer. No, and I didn't... No, he, no that I, he wasn't a peer. He, But I think one of those cool young teachers who's like closer to you in age than like mm-hmm. other people. Although there are several things about this movie that watching it back, having to watch it for this podcast, I was aware of not having answers to. Like it's... Yeah. Because it's like this weird thing. Because like, okay, so like in this movie, movie for instance John John Dahl who gives a really incredible performance as Brandon in this film mm-hmm. he was 28 years old at the time of filming 27 Whoa. 28 I'm and sorry but there's something about old movies where actors look so much older than I would think a 28 yeah. year old looks but yeah. sorry please go ahead no 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 you're absolutely right and Farley Granger was 23 so what? Yeah. That's crazy. I would have given them all 30s. It's probably also like, I bet it's that like makeup, that movie, the heavier makeup and stuff that probably plays a factor in it. style of dress too. Like it's hard to tell when you are looking back at a time where like everyone sort of dressed in a, like, I don't know, like besides having an overarching understanding of what the fashion was like in 1948, I don't really know what the difference between like a 24 year old, how they would dress versus like, you know, a 40 year old. Does that make sense? Well, it's like really clear now, but like when you're watching old movies, it's like everyone's wearing a suit. So how the fuck am I supposed to know? Yeah, (laughs) no, they're all like impeccably dressed. Well, not them. They're not all impeccably dressed, but the young men in the movie are Brandon and Farley have gorgeous suits on, especially Brandon's suit. I love it. I love Um, Brandon's suit. I was like focused on that for a, a while. It's like this great blue color, which it's really I wonder. Dark blue. Yeah, I wonder if like because this is like um, hit, I I read that it was Hitchcock's first movie in color. Like mm-hmm. I wonder how accurate that color was to real life. But oh, it for was, sure. I just really liked the color of his suit. And I mean, this movie was groundbreaking for a lot of reasons, as you probably you know read about. Um, a lot of the different techniques that were used in this movie had never been used before. Mm-hmm. The first time I watched this movie, I actually didn't clock um, as many of the. Um, as many of the breaks as there were. I, I clocked probably two or... I didn't clock or th- any of them. I clocked, so there's one... I read one, about them afterwards. I mean, 
I understood it afterwards, but yes. during the time, I didn't clock When you're him. just watching it, the first time I watched this yeah. movie, I was really blown away just because it's done so masterfully. And this, obviously, like, I have to imagine was an inspiration behind, like, you know, that scene at the beginning of, like, Goodfellas that... Um, I've never seen Goodfellas. Um, there's a scene at the beginning of, um, of Goodfellas that... That's not that, true. I have seen Goodfellas. Just kidding. But it's the same thing. It's that sustained uh, long shot going through, like, a restaurant. And, That's right. Um, and that's I'm, I'm sure that had to in some ways been inspired uh, by this. I mean, this yeah. was this was groundbreaking for its time for that reason. Um, and I watched an interview, um, Dick Cavett interview with Alfred Hitchcock, and he talked about uh, that technique. And he talked about because this was based on um, a 1920. This movie came out in uh, 1948, but it was mm-hmm. based on a play of the same name that was that was from 1929. Um and I think that he really was going for like that that theatrical aspect of it, and he really wanted to find a work that he could work with, uh, a source material that he could work with that would give him the opportunity to sort of like oh in real time almost like tell this mm-hmm. tell a story from beginning to end without totally. breaks so that he could sort of sustain it and this movie which also um implements uh cyclorama which is all which to me sounds like it's the curtain wall that is uh that is often concave and that's sort of the background as you can see the background of the city behind mm-hmm. them that is you know as dave pointed out you know it's a living thing like the clouds are moving mm-hmm. um and certain and at certain points but it's a the, set like it's, but a, it's, it's a, a set, set. Yeah. yeah but it, but what so what is i'm i'm confused about what cyclorama it's is. almost like a panorama in a way but it's like it's concave meaning that it has a curvature to it that helps give the illusion of dimension okay so this is so we're talking about like a style of set building Yes, we're talking okay. about a style of like like a background almost like for okay. the set. So when you get those those large because the apartment that they're in has this sort of like cur- large expansive curved window that almost takes mm-hmm. up an entire like wall in their like you know very fancy like penthouse apartment. Yeah, I mean frankly, I'm like this is a great apartment. I would no, love a, to no, live No, it here. is a gorgeous. It's a gorgeous apartment, and the and view sort of takes us through the Manhattan skyline in the background, yeah. and it's like it looks very real you know it's a set because we're watching this in 2022 but like in 1948 you this you see this and you think like this is a very very high standard of like of background and set it's, and it's know? changing throughout the it, yes. like it goes from day to night and when it hits mm-hmm. night you see light it, it hits night gradually and then slowly some of the buildings there the lights start to come on and they start to be sort of illuminated illuminated little by little so it's sort of telling the story of day to night which is yeah, interesting it's really fucking cool it is really cool and also this is an 80 minute film so but it but you know the timeline i think they said is like a little bit it's dancing closer to two hours but things are mm-hmm. sped up like the amount of time and what's happening is sped up a little bit within the actual like evening to sort of get us to nighttime from where we start at yeah. which is really but interesting it's interesting because it does feel like when it plays out when you're watching it from beginning to end it does not not feel like there are any breaks or like there's any speeding up like you feel like you are with these people from the time because you open up on this murder which um i which is really funny because well not funny but like 
to hear about how gruesome people thought it was. Oh, where we've where we've gone and, to from here. <laughs> where we've gone to. Because, like, I didn't even clock it, really. It's like it ends with them, like, I mean, it opens up with, like, the end of the strangulation. So they've got the rope. The rope around his neck. They're holding him. And you hear a scream because the first shot of the movie is sort of this, this shot from outside of what um, Hitchcock termed as, like, a miniaturized set, basically, mm-hmm. from outside. that, And then you go into the, you hear a scream from outside. It's a lovely sunny day in New York. And you hear this scream. And then the next shot is this close-up shot on David Kentley, the character of David Kentley, being strangled and then placed in the trunk by Philip and Brandon, who are our mm-hmm. two leads. I, I guess I can't really say protagonists, because I don't, I, it's an interesting movie in the sense that you're not really rooting. For, I, I Even as anti-heroes, you're not rooting for them, because, you know, you watch a movie where you've got a bad guy as the lead, a person who's yeah. not necessarily doing good, but you still root for mm-hmm. them, even though, like, their means for doing the thing that they're doing. It's very Walter White. Like, yeah. you still yeah, root yeah, for yeah. them. But in this, in this instance, there's no, I mean, it honestly would be more akin to, like, an American psycho in a way. Like, it's like, there's nothing good about where they're doing and their reasoning for doing it is non-existent so like right but like at the same time like and and i agree with you like i was i wasn't also this is interesting because i've seen it before you haven't seen it before so when you were watching the movie as a first time viewer did you find yourself rooting for like brandon and philip i was not rooting for them okay but there is that incredible shot where um they are having a conversation, but that's not what's on camera. The entire party is there. The camera is on the housekeeper. It's so good. It's the best shot of the movie. I was like, I, I, my breathing got shallow while I was watching this shot. And as Brandon mentioned in his synopsis, they change the location of where they're setting up the dinner buffet onto the trunk where David's body is. And they put a, a like a lacy blanket yeah. over mm-hmm. it. Sorry. <laughs> blanket. A lacy tablecloth over it. The food is there. They've got candles. And you are watching from this angle where you can see see like the housekeeper going back and forth from the kitchen it's a straight shot you can see like the table is right to your the left of the screen and then you can see all the way down the hallway as she's walking back and forth from the kitchen clearing things from the table with the intention of she's going to put these books back into the trunk and you're waiting for it like she keeps bring, taking things off the table going back to the kitchen and like back and forth taking off the tablecloth and you're just like uh, when that was happening I was not rooting for um, Brandon and Philip, but I was like in my mind I was like oh my god no 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 I didn't want that table to be opened or that trunk to be opened for a number of reasons, but and and Brandon stops it at the last minute, very calmly, like a like a a very um, practiced psycho. No, and yeah, John they move on. so good, yeah. So he's so good in that. You're 100 percent right, though. It's like it's this. It's like the the frame of the shot, the corner of the frame of the shot is the trunk, and it happens very sort of. I mean, seamlessly. It's it's literally and, and what's really wonderful about it, and what's really unique about it. I was actually talking to Dave about this earlier. What's really unique about it is that we've got 
the group of dinner party guests who are who are in the living room having a conversation the trunk where the meal has sort of taken place and the candelabras have been set up on the trunk and there's been um various appetizers and things that have been served from the from atop the trunk all of these things the housekeeper is just sort of beginning her nightly routine of like putting things away so it's business as usual for her the camera though literally as they're all so and we're still getting the dialogue of them but we're just not seeing them which is a really like unusual thing and the yes and the dialogue during this period of time and they go back and forth to this conversation within the evening but during this period of time first of all you can see jimmy stewart's back um that's the only person you can see besides the housekeeper going back and forth and they're talking about where david is and they're concerned and should they call this person or that person he would have phoned this isn't like david and and that is such a a, a anxiety producing conversation to be happening while she's like she's so close to this dead body who is david and it's so brilliantly done it's like this really like incredible moment in the film because Edith Evanson, who plays Mrs. Wilson, Mrs. Wilson is like the boy's housekeeper. So she shows up after going out to run errands and get a dessert for the party. This all happens while she's gone. And this is also, you know, David goes, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, David's dead. Uh, Brandon goes to the refrigerator <laughs> to get like some vuve, which I was like, I see you getting that vuve out. Mm-hmm. still. And we were really, we were, we were actually really like just taking in the bottle because it was really beautiful. And yeah, yeah, and school. it was just gorgeous to see this 1940s bottle of champagne. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, but as all of this is happening, that's when Brandon gets this, the morbid idea that they should that he should move, like he should move the action into the room, and he should place the tablecloth on top of the trunk. And how fun would that be for all of these, you know, his in his mind idiots to be, you mm-hmm. know, centered around this trunk holding the body while they're spending the entire night wondering where he is, you know, while eating this like lovely meal in this beautiful apartment overlooking the city, and like no idea that like what's going on like you know beneath beneath their noses without them knowing it because i mean this party is essentially catered in in many regards to david because david doesn't actually live here david's in town which makes it all the more sad too because david's in town visiting he's come in town as we find out um earlier uh jane and i both watched the trailer for rope it's a really good trailer which you can just find through searching it on youtube but in the movie the first shot of the movie the first frame of the actors is the frame of david being killed and then placed in the trunk so we don't get to see david acting or engaging or interacting with anyone ever but in the trailer to the movie it's a scene between david and the character of janet who is played by joan chandler in this film uh janet walker who is david's um it's david basically sort of an informal proposal that he is basically making to janet they're in the park it looks like central park they're in like the park and she's and he's proposing to her and they're sort of going back and forth but you can see the love between them and then Mm -hmm. he says oh i've got a meeting and he heads off and then the camera (laughs) then the camera cuts to jimmy stewart (laughs) who's like that's the last time that she'll see david alive and it's the last time you'll see him alive too because these (laughs) no good dirty rotten scoundrels philip and brandon the Fagila, who, who killed him? They killed him dead. They're gay. 
the Fagilas. I was like, did Brandon choose this movie so that he can do 90 minutes of his Jimmy Stewart impression? When I tell you until I just did it just then, I swear to God, you're not going to believe me. That was my first time ever doing a Jimmy Stewart accent. Come and on. As I, I swear to God. And as I was doing it, I was thinking, this is kind of slapping. Like, that was literally was, the moment. It was all right, honey. <laughs> Don't you dare. You're trying to take it away from me. See, I knew you would. I knew See, you couldn't be trusted, Jane. You're losing it. But the <sighs> thing is, um, Tara I you. and I You did... won't give it to me, and you need to give it to me. You know <laughs> it's popping. you've ever given me anything, B. Come on. I gave you a guest spot on my podcast, mama. Oh, my God. I swear to God, I will burn your entire house down. Oh, the threat. And we've got to document it. Let's keep it in. In case you have a prize to do it. I'll tell the police. Um, no, actually, I was just about to ask you, did you watch this movie with T? I did, but she didn't get to see the last half, which I think she's disappointed about. So I think she'll probably um, watch it again later because mm-hmm. I had to watch it in two parts. Okay. Um, but she watched the first half. And the first half, of course, we were both doing our Jimmy Stewart impression the whole time. But so um, good. yeah, it's really interesting because I actually think she was really into it. And she is not generally <laughs> into why movies. I was curious that are super dialogue heavy. I think she gets like a little bored without action, but she was, she was like, Hey, come find me when you watch this, watch the um, last half. Cause I want to watch it. And I ended up like having watched it at a time where she wasn't home, mm-hmm. but um, I think she's going to want to go back. I hope she goes back and, and watches it. I'd be really curious yeah. um, what, what she thinks of it. But I was actually, I thought about her while I was watching the movie. I was like, I hope, I hope yeah. T gets to watch it. And I hope T likes it. And I thought she would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, I, I think she I think she's gonna like how it ends up um and I mean I feel like I'm like I know she edits this and I'm like well I don't want to give any spoilers but like by the time she edits it she's gonna finish it because we rented that shit on Amazon we only got 48 hours on it absolutely you know how they you know how they do no mm-hmm. it's true and I I also think that one thing that's really interesting about this movie is it's funny how like okay so apparently okay so as I mentioned earlier this movie is based on a this movie is based on a play. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's really interesting about this movie is that this the screenplay for this was uh, Patrick Hamilton wrote the play, the 1929 um, play, by the way. And then it was adapted by Hume Cronin. And um, along Is Patrick with sc- Hamilton like a famous playwright? I don't, I haven't heard I that never, No, I, I've never heard of okay. uh, Patrick uh, Patrick Hamilton before this. Okay. Full name Anthony Walter Patrick Hamilton, baby, if you're nasty. <laughs> oh, um, wow. You can take it all in. Um, but uh, but Arthur Lawrence, was, who wrote, the, who worked on the screenplay, is gay. Like an out gay man, and then mm. um, it is widely speculated that uh, John Dahl, who played the role of Brandon, was gay in real life, and also I mean, Farley he... Granger as well, um, who plays the role of Philip. All three okay. of them. Brandon, I was definitely like, I mean, you know, I, I've always got my little um, my spidey senses on. And... Also, just so everybody knows, Jane wants everyone to be gay, just so we're clear. <laughs> This is what Jane is. She's the gay agenda. She is the thing that they're afraid of, you know, taking over the world. Um, I queers. don't want everyone to be gay. I know that people are a lot more gay than they admit to being. So particularly, that, particularly back in the day, like I'm just like I, and it's largely, well, actually, fully speculative. Whenever I'm like that person's gay, but I have a good sense about these things, I think. Okay. 
You look so and, much like your mom just then, for some reason to me. Oh my god, thank you. Had you had this look on your face, this knowing like look in your mm-hmm. eye, and mm-hmm. I saw Nan coming through. I mean, I am lucky to have her come through, you know? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I feel like we really need to talk about is the script of this movie. Like, this is... So, like, first of all, when I was watching this, I was like... I didn't know for sure because I hadn't looked anything up, but I was like, this is a play. Like, this is 100% based on a play. This is a movie that is based on a play. And I think, like my experience with watching older movies for this podcast is like and this may be wrong and you have obviously a lot more of like a um a larger um pool of knowledge to pull from this but like do you feel like back in the day older movies i'm talking 40s 50s 60s um, do you feel like movies were written more like plays back in the day and they sort of started to diverge once, like, you know, I don't know, big studios got bigger, like more fancy photography things were introduced and stuff like that? I think that, okay, in the 60s and in the 70s, I think that, and this is, this is not like, this is very general and broad, but it is what I know. Making, what I know of it. We're making sweeping generalizations sure. on this podcast. That's what we're always doing, and for sure, you know, uh, that's fine. But being that I really do love these these films, one thing mm-hmm. that I do think is worth noting is that there was like this shift that was happening. It was actually happening and starting in like the fifties mm-hmm. um, with um, with like the new school, for instance, like the acting, the type of acting that was happening, and you mm-hmm. know the Stanislavski method of acting, Sanford Meisner, like these techniques mm-hmm. that were being implemented into performance were really sort of like. Causing, calling on the actor to tap into the truth of who they were and bring that into the characters and imbue the characters with it. I mm-hmm. think that it's something also that like I've noted in in several different performance settings um, while studying performance. Um, a lot of the work that goes into often, more so when you're dealing with like period with a capital P pieces a lot of times Mm -hmm. if you're dealing with like a Ben Johnson or if you're dealing with like a Shakespeare um, those types of playwrights or if you're dealing with like a George Bernard Shaw I don't know who Ben Johnson is just another a a really famous playwright who wrote a lot of like classical um, theater what is deemed as classical theater but a lot of times when you're dealing with like this heightened language and this particular kind of world building it can cause an actor especially contemporary actor now to become stilted in a way and a lot of the work at least in my experience of working with Meisner and me working with other actors as well as with myself there's a process that has to that has to take place because you have to understand the body of a person existing during these time periods and the, and the ways in which they moved the gait the ways in which they carried themselves it's different for a variety of reasons for, for because of what they wore the you know the, the 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 type of clothing that they wore especially if you're dealing with female um characters um that are wearing uh typically female characters female presenting characters that are wearing corsets and Mm. and or um or like victorian garb those types Mm -hmm. of outfits just cause you to use your body in a different way so breathing Mm -hmm. is different so the way that you enter a room is different so the way that you engage in an argument is different and then Mm -hmm. there's a whole other conversation about your social standing in society and like the given circumstances of your particular life but all of that to say that like you have to work sometimes 
so much harder to imbue those characters and to imbue that text with something that feels like authentic and true to like performance as we know it and I think that sometimes even when you're looking at things from like the 1930s or the 1940s you get that same feeling which is Mm -hmm. I think why a lot of those actors that stand out and that have stood the test of time they really find ways to sort of pierce through like Mm -hmm. their performance still rings true in this way but Mm -hmm. then you also have people that can make an argument for like actors that don't necessarily maybe have that quality Mm -hmm. because it's like that's not the some people feel and felt like that's not the job of these like of these movies like the job of these movies is to take us out of the reality of the world and to deal Mm -hmm. with like a different you know a different type of 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 existing so i but i but i agree with you and i think that a lot of this material to make a long story short it comes Mm -hmm. from plays and from um novels and books and Mm -hmm. i think that you get that in there um in a certain way and there's times when actors are interacting with each other or where the dialogue feels like stilted in a way which is owing to several things because it's like when you i think you get a lot more of the human when you're looking at an engagement between like brandon and philip without Mm -hmm. other people being around Mm -hmm. and then i think that you get this uh, version of like code changing in a way where things shift when like when like moneyed older adults into the room and we see that we see the way in which well obviously it's to the detriment of philip because he just continues to unravel but we see how brandon (laughs) rises to the occasion and we see how he turns it up Mm -hmm. a couple notches and we see i mean we all do this in in society we all do this in the world but i think that there's a way in which there's the level of performativity that like that brandon generates and also he he ups it as well because he's trying to compensate for Mm -hmm. the unraveling of philip so like look over here don't look over there so like i think but i think that you're right because i think that you watch it and you think like which is often when i've dealt with characters period characters where it's like there's a monster under there like there is absolutely and you see it in like i see it in like joan crawford some joan crawford performances i see it in like betty davis performances Hmm. like if you watch like the little foxes which is one of my favorite plays actually but when you watch like the the film version of that with um with betty davis um you see those moments when she's not getting what she wants and she has Mm -hmm. some really like scathing dialogue but it's delivered in this sort of way and then if you look at betty davis like 20 30 years later and you see like the ways in which she's gotten older obviously but also you see the ways that film style has changed and you look at the Mm -hmm. ways in which she is not at the mercy of of the style and at the mercy of the world in the way that she was doing a film from like the 30s or the 40s it's super interesting and that was a really like i think that was a really good question jane that's like a really astute observation about like yeah about the different like types of of the different types of performance and like what you're saying is totally right i think that like there's this sort of literate like quality that is like that sort of permeates from like these actors and like it is a part of the way that these scripts were written and not always but a lot of the time there is a formality and i think and i think like i i just to be clear like i didn't feel like i i thought the the performances were incredible no for sure it's a style thing it's a style thing and i Mm -hmm. just I, i found myself wondering like because this is sort of you know the beginning of mm-hmm. the movie industry like did we approach writing these characters and these situations and these stories more 
like a play and then did they sort of start to separate into their own thing as time went on we started to figure out more what it means to be making a movie and how that's different from you know a performance on the stage I think you see it in the 60s and especially in the 70s when directors Mm -hmm. especially like a John Cassavetes when they start to get really experimental and they start to bring things like not saying that it wasn't a part of it before but it starts to become foregrounded things like improvisational performance techniques where Mm -hmm. these actors are really like they're being given skeletons and they're going in and they are really working on like it's it's what they did in theater they're bringing those theatrical right. techniques mm-hmm. into the performances and you start to get these really intense vivid performances that in a lot of cases although we're dealing with you know ordinary people taking on extraordinary circumstances often but you start to see it uh, particularly in a movie i haven't given you yet because i've just been like this is a lot um Mm -hmm. but it's one of my favorite performances by an actress ever jenna rollins who is uh, talk about Mm. underrated actresses who have not won academy awards and deserve them Mm -hmm. it's a travesty jenna rollins and a woman um on the verge um Mm. I think it's a woman on the verge. Let me make sure I get it right, because otherwise people are going to be like, not you. Not you getting... Woman under the influence. It's a 1974 film that her husband, uh, John Cassavetes, um, directed, and it is one of my favorite performances by an actress, actor period ever and I thought you were gonna give me Woman on oh Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown the Pedro Almodovar film which I fucking love that's which is one a completely my, different film and an incredible film as well thing. yeah but so I mean good. women put up with bullshit basically yeah um but yeah this movie is like you I think you're really gonna love it it's a lot but I think you're really gonna be able to like appreciate what Jenna Rollins has committed to film and she often did it in her collaborations with John Cassavetes but they're the kind of performances yeah. that feel like dangerous as you're watching it you feel Mm -hmm. like is somebody in control of what's going on because it feels like the wheels are off in a really exciting and interesting way and And I think there's a bit of that in this movie too like there's a lot of experimentation in this movie that like you know if you think about like other movies that you've seen from this time period and um, 1948 it's so crazy like that's so fucking long ago yeah um uh, what is the Christmas movie that Jimmy Stewart's and why is it leaving my it's a wonderful brain? Life. It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. Like, that was made probably around the same time, maybe a little bit earlier. But, like, you see how that is, like, a very standard film from that time period. And this is, like, you know, maybe that's a few 46. years later. So that's okay, two yeah. years so before. So this is, like, mm-hmm. a couple of years later. And this is... This is like no movie that I've ever seen still. And this was made in 1948. So it's like, you know that this is incredibly experimental for the time. And like, I... I was enthralled this whole movie and I always think like every time these older movies come up I have this like trauma from my and obviously trauma is like a big word but like trauma from like my childhood where like my something would be would come on you know the Turner classic movies and I would be like you know 12 and my mom be like oh this is a great movie let's watch this and I'd be like no I don't want to watch this it's so boring and like just like totally just not pay any attention to it and so anytime you give me an old movie I drag my feet and I watch it at the last possible minute and I always Always end up like being totally engrossed and totally involved because I know like a it's insane for me to be like I don't 
enjoy old movies. What a wild concept. It's a movie. Who cares what time period it's from? Um, but also you are curating these to my tastes. <laughs> well, it also can, it can, it can feel like an undertaking because it's like, what's right. this going to be? It's going to be a movie I don't connect with. It's a completely mm-hmm. different kind of world. And like, it's old and what are like the value systems that are being like you know explored right. and like mm-hmm. is it just gonna feel like this thing apart from like my world mm-hmm. um, and a lot of times some of those thoughts are true but I mean totally it's, uh, you know there's mo- uh, every movie is different but I think like when you I, I know that I just need to trust you <laughs> like, and it's not that I don't I'm just always like what am I gonna you know what am I getting I'm, into typically if I'm giving you an older movie for the most part sometimes i maybe like get a load of this piece of shit but for the <laughs> most but for the most part i'm giving you like an older movie that i'm obsessed with and that i'm like right. i'm like you're gonna love it because there's i mean because there's so many older films to like choose from and i also right. it may be like this movie's a mess but this is one really good performance and right. you've got to deal with like the mess around it but like i feel you though it's like it's different and it's not something you normally do so it's like oh what's this gonna be but I also know, like, intellectually, I know it's part of your goal, too, to, like, um, get me more, in, just, like, more of an education about what's going on with this, like, time period within film, you know? And and that, you make, you want me to like it, I think. Oh, for you know? sure. And, I, and it's <laughs> typically movies that I'm like, oh, she's going to have fun with this one. Right, exactly. You know? And this one and, I picked, oh, I'm so sorry. I was just going to say, it's because I know how much we talk about true crime and Right, this and is, everything. like, my... And so, my third note, I was like, as, as a true crime enthusiast, this is possibly the best way for a movie to start. Because it starts, it starts, it like, obviously, right at the, like, um, climax of the crime, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. death of a person. And, and then it marries my absolute just, like, obsession with, like, you know, sassy gay dialogue. But it's absolutely. set in nineteen forty eight. It's very like Noel Coward. It is. It has like yes, this Noel Coward quality to it. Yeah. Like this sort of like flippant like dialogue, this really great like these really great barbs, this really great back and forth, which you would find in like a lighter fare of movie. So yes. it's really interesting that like that's what this movie is about because there's the tete a tete between several of the characters where you're just like, God, I wish I lived in a world where everybody was that quick. You know what I, know. I mean? I know. It's like it's it's that like desire to just be like, God, if we could all volley off each other perfectly all the time. In beautiful, in beautiful like penthouse apartments in Manhattan, yes. while you know we are wearing impeccably tailored clothing, like wouldn't that just be it? You know, one thousand percent. I um, I also think it's really. It's really interesting with this film because you're right. They, they give us the murder at the very beginning. And the mm-hmm. thing that I noted to Dave was that what it feels like from a POV standpoint with this movie is it feels like you are like the third friend who was in the room when they did the thing that they did. And then you're just like, and you're like petrified and you watched it and you haven't said a word and you're literally just sitting in the corner watching everything unfold, not being able to like say anything or intervene in any way. Totally. And like you're a fly the on the thing. wall. But in like- a true, true, 
truly and I think that's a really big testament to this style of filmmaking that like it really gives you which is theatrical I mean it gives yeah. you that sort of it gives you the like that the freedom of a, like a true spectator where it's like I shouldn't be here this is too intimate this is mm-hmm. this is too much and and also it does this really interesting thing because it is a thriller you know and at times it feels like a dark comedy but then they're also like it's 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 loaded with because one of the critiques that I saw sev- several of the critiques when the movie came out was that it it was stilted in a way or like the the, the cinematic achievement of the director um, sort of overshadowed and, and left with like cold performances which I don't think is true I fully disagree and, with and I think it has a lot of heart and I think that it comes through in, in sort of like this under there's this sort of undergird throughout the movie of like worry for like David and where he is because he's supposed to be at this party <laughs> And I just get like that. This, this, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, 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 you. No, There's like this chilling aspect of it. Just seeing the like, just seeing the interactions between Brandon and Philip. Like when you feel like you're the only one who knows and they're the only one who knows like you are in on this with them and i think like it's like the fly on the wall thing but it's also like you are a you're weirdly a part of it because it's like it, it you know the fourth wall is like not there but it's not broken like you are just a a silent mute participant you're almost like an invisible person mm-hmm, within this place mm-hmm. and it's a very interesting way to i feel like the fourth wall is broken but they're unaware that anybody else is like watching it's a very strange thing that i don't think i've experienced a lot of times with movies no i agree i think that it's like from the very beginning and i think also like it's really great too because it like it's not gory but like in the sense that like one of the things that he does really beautifully is it's like so much of what's horrifying about it is like what's already happened and so they don't really it's not really a lot of violence being showcased in the film yeah it's not violent it's not a violent (laughs) film but it's like it's sort of it just exists in the air and in the atmosphere because you Mm -hmm. know what took place here right before the party started and I think that it benefits from the fact that like your imagination does a lot of the work for you yeah Um, and I think that's a big part of what makes it like successful at doing the things that it's trying to do as Mm -hmm. a film and there are those moments where you are you're right you're observing and you're just sort of like oh my god like I can't like it's like because the thing that's unique about this movie I have to imagine for this time period is like the is like the fact that like there's such a flippant there's such a like a flippant quality to Brandon yes he's so nonchalant and it's so easy and that's what's so chilling about it that's the thing about it and he's so he's so at peace and Mm -hmm. so that's a big part of it and I think you get he's rarely shaken until the very end until the very end he's not and even as we watch you know Philip really come to terms with it because I think Philip is in a lot of ways talk about a woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown right (laughs) this is is Losing it. Yeah, call call her a panini because she's pressed. Um, it is she's not doing well, and no. Brandon doesn't care. And how Mm-mm. and it's the and it's the ease with which Brandon sort of moves through this world, and all of it and in a way too. It feels like this sort of social commentary in a way because it feels like this send up of the bourgeoisie kind of because it's like you are like the people, many of the guests of this party. You're the upper crust of society. Mm-hmm. You think that you own the 
town, you know, uh, D- one of the guests at the party is David's father. So he's at the party wondering where his son is. And it's like, you know, you're a part of the elite and you're right. here and you think that like, you know, we're all so safe and our like nest of like, you know, financial superiority for sure. Mm-hmm. And you, unbeknownst to you, like your son's dead. Like you're not safe. Your money didn't protect you from that. I feel like that's that feels like a part of it too. Yeah. Well, the conversation too is like and you find out as it unravels at the end like it's Brandon taking the philosophy which he feels he learned from Rupert Jimmy Stewart's character about you know if you are intellectually superior to the people around you then you are not held to the same kinds of like morals and rights and wrongs as like general society and in that case they've used it to justify this murder to a see if they could get away with it he many times references it as being the perfect crime he does it in the beginning of the movie right after the murder and i was like we might be jumping the gun a little bit yeah, brandon let's, we got a let's lot. wait it out you're, before you're, we like you're <laughs> and like also there is nothing more sinister and gay about throwing a dinner party to like <laughs> celebrate a murder that nobody knows about that you're like thrusting in their face there's just like it's a very like queer response the, to, like, the like, like ultimate you you got the ultimate tea it's yeah, just like exactly exactly it's like i've got the hottest goss off the press and it's in that trunk yeah and you're never gonna know and in order to celebrate i'm throwing myself a dinner party and you think this is some sort of you know party for David or I don't even like people like reference that the parties for different things throughout the night and it's like like, look (laughs) Brandon just wanted to throw a damn party but it's also (laughs) like but the thing too about this movie and a part of what's so cold and callous is it's like the forethought that went into it because it's like you threw this party you planned this party you you planned this party this has already been set up so you already knew you were going to kill him so you planned this dinner party knowing that he was going to be dead once the party happened and you made a point of like curating the list of people that you invited so that it is a group of people that are sort of like at the center of his world like most like affected by this and like honey that's murder one in a court of law oh yeah absolutely (laughs) you're not getting murder two baby this is planned also also right after they kill him he runs to the refrigerator to get that that ice cold um champagne that he's had like chilling in preparation for this so it's like this is what the night was gonna be like i've done like there's something about like the preparatory aspect which tells you that like this isn't something that they were thinking about doing and waffling on it's like this is what we're gonna do i've got the champagne in like there's something about the forethought executing for a while like they're executing Executing, and then they're executing. If you know and they I mean. got, and they got. I mean, they really kind of danced pretty close because, I mean, Miss Wilson could have come back early. She came back like right <laughs> after they got that body in that trunk. The that's timing the, that's a is so precarious. Yeah, and 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 it's so funny. Well, it's it's ridiculous. Is the thing that like Brandon is so chill, and even throughout the whole like party, he keeps making references about like that are total like Easter eggs for Philip and like anybody who is like listening to like implicate themselves in this murder, like. 
uh, there's oh, a few things like, he says. I and it's like he's getting like more. He's like upping the ante more and more, you know. And it's like and it's less and less subtle as well. So it feels yeah. more like okay, girl, like you're getting the lily a bit. Um, it right. is like like it's just like yeah, it's yeah. Rent prices are really. It's deaf. like he's like. Yeah, it's like he wants to get caught in some ways. He wants to toe that line of like, I know something. And like, when you guys find out what happened, you're going to think back on this night and think about all the clever ways I weaved this into the conversation because I'm as sick as a a human being could possibly be. (laughs) But also the overall goal is still like I to not get caught. So it's like, it's almost a testament to how it's a testament to what he says earlier in the movie, which is his intellectual superiority because it is like, Mm -hmm. these people are so Mm -hmm. stupid that I'm going to throw this dinner party. There's going to be a dead body in that trunk, which he plans on, on their whole plan is after this party, they're going out to the country and they're going to like dump the body. That's like a, Mm -hmm. that's like the plan. So it's like, I'm going to have like, you'll never know. You will never, and you may suspect, but you'll never be able to prove it. And the body's going to be gone at that point. And you, like dummies, will be none the wiser. And I've spent this entire party with, you know, David's betrothed and with David's father and David's aunt and, you know, and a close friend. Like, everybody's here hanging out. And, yeah. like, it's just, it's so, it's so messy. And it's, by design, is it messy? And it's like, there, it's funny too, because this movie is in many ways, it hits on like what are unfortunately, unfortunately, um, like parts of like gay culture, because it's like the, the movie yes. never explicitly <laughs> states that's okay. So that's a big part of the movie. And that's a big reason, a part of why right. they think that why it's been suspected that this movie, um, and many critics have said that they think the movie wasn't more successful as a Hitchcock film was that, um, it is, it is very queer and it is as queer as you could be in 19. 19- 48 making a film it is very it's not actually well okay i didn't talk to you about that part of it at all did you naturally just pick up on like the queer energy of this film okay so what so i'll tell you my experience with it Mm -hmm. so when i started this movie i did not know that obviously they were a Brandon and Philip were a couple. I didn't know that. I thought they were prep school friends who, you know, in the very beginning of the movie, who decided to murder someone for fun. The when it occurred to me that they were actually a couple was mm-hmm. after everybody left. There's there they have this conversation. Philip is of course on the verge of losing his fucking mind. He, the whole night he's getting drunker and drunker and more visibly nervous. And um uh Brandon is talking to him and he's like trying to make him feel better a little bit and he says something about like let's go on a holiday, let's go on this. And I was like, huh. They both, I guess they both live here. And it seems like they might be a couple. So I didn't really realize it until about two thirds in into the movie. I thought, oh, wow, this dialogue is like unbelievably gay. <laughs> but I just was like, that's like a that's like a fun gay play, right? Like just like, you know, throwing in gay culture where he can in 1948. And, um, you know coming be, coming to that realization about two thirds into the movie I was like you saw like a bottle of like oh. Swiss Navy lube on the counter and you were like hmm, that's interesting <laughs> <laughs> oh I wonder what these 
boys do, these broy boys do How in their spare time. How they get that Britney Jean poster in this apartment? <laughs> so strange. Um, but yeah, so then I, so then I was like, oh, okay, thinking of this in a totally different lens now that I realize y'all are doing it. And they mentioned the bedroom a couple of times and that's where the phone is kept in the bedroom and they say that to Mrs. Wilson the housekeeper and I believe they say it to Janet but then there's also the implication that Janet and Brandon had a previous relationship which is totally possible like obviously sexuality is is you know a moving target and fluid and whatever but um so that I think that's what threw me off initially and then Later, almost towards the end of the movie, they say something about the second bedroom. And I was like, okay, these this is all coded language. The bedroom and the second bedroom. So clearly they're a couple. And and then after that point, I was like, it felt confirmed for me. And I was like, oh, this is a really fucking gay movie. <laughs> it's like there's a, there's a lot of like subtlety and like nuance. And the thing that I notice now when I watch the movie after watching it for like the first time and then reading a little bit about it, um, this time watching it the first time again for the podcast, I noticed like all of the times that like Brandon touches philip a lot in the mm. moment like very subtly but like there's like moments where philip's coming like undone and brandon sort of like puts his like his hand on the small of his back or he touches his shoulder and like come on like none oh of my that God, like, I didn't... none of it's like necessary you know like none of this is necessarily no, but like within oh the my context, God. but within yeah. the context you see like these moments that he's using physical touch as like a almost like a grounding um, a grounding mechanism, like a point of contact that he is, you know, attempting to sort of uh, negotiate like a, a, a level of like, you know, familiarity and using these things as a, as like sensationally, he's using these things as like a means to like connect, you know, and to bring him back totally. to like his version mm-hmm. of reality, the version that he needs for Philip to continue to uphold. So like, and, and to, mm-hmm. to and continue to help him sustain and lean into. So it's like all of those little moments with the hands all over the body, it's like, okay, he's touching him a lot. And I did have that where I was like, okay, there's a lot of touching. There's a lot of like little moments, which like I say, in and of themselves don't necessarily mean anything, but in thinking about this movie as a part of like the queer cinematic canon, it <laughs> is like- context. Yeah, they're doing as much as can possibly be done, and right, and that's probably so intentional because a lot of stuff I read, considering just like how um, intensely they had to block this movie based on like where they were putting the cameras and moving the walls and stuff like that to get the super long shots that they're doing, like every step and every like you know gesture was rehearsed and at least this is what I read about it and so that's probably again part of the coded um, narrative in there which I think is great because putting those things in there as like signaling you know to your community in a way when you couldn't really say it in 1948 is is pretty awesome but then there's also the other side of the coin where it doesn't with with no representation when the only representation you have are like gay evil geniuses you're like okay don't love that factor it's not necessarily painting our community in the 
best light because this is again one of the only pieces of representation that probably exists from 1948 it also like the there's like it's funny too in a way because it's like i had i had that same moment and then i had to think about like Mm -hmm. the greater sort of scope of like alfred hitchcock and his films and how there's all different types of murders and killers but it's interesting that this film and then there's also another film that i will have you watch at uh, some point on the podcast who knows maybe soon um Mm. but strangers on a train which is a very famous um, mm. Alfred Hitchcock film and it also has a lot of gay undertones and also stars Farley Granger so he was like <gasps> oh wow he he's was on like, the roster right, sis, I got another role for you um, mm-hmm. but yeah you were in college during during this time when the movie was originally made weren't you <laughs> yeah right you high bitch school? you get high school, one then. you, you get one no okay. no <laughs> fine no. alright wow it's like so weird. I just this is thought about my the f- mother was even born. I just thought about. I was just thinking about how like my great grandmother was like our, our age when this movie <laughs> came out, which is like a wild thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like damn, that's crazy. Um, God, your great grandmother probably was like grandmother age, honestly. Just because your parents are a little bit older than my parents, and in turn, that makes me. No, I just said your. I was like my great grandmother, and my grandmother uh-huh. was probably younger than your great grandmother was at this time. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> that was a shade. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so like, no, she's like, oh no, you're no not gonna problem. be my great grandmother. Um, <laughs> no, you're absolutely probably right. Or my grand. Well, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, probably. And then, um, do you want to... Okay, so one thing I was going to say was that, first of all, you mentioned silence, and one of the scenes where it's the eeriest is at the end of the movie, they've all but, like, given their cover at this point, mainly Philip, and everybody's, everybody's, (laughs) like, left. And then Rupert, who's played by James Stewart, makes a decision to come back to the apartment. He claims to have forgotten his... Mm. um, He claims to have forgotten his cigarette case, which is a lie, and it's just a ruse to get back into the apartment alone with everybody gone. And he and suspects. By the way, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just I just want to say, throughout the whole movie, throughout the dinner party, Rupert is so fucking suspicious. Like he comes in there with an absolute. He's like, hot. He, eyebrow raised. He is ready to like find something out that's going on here. Like you don't really like. I, I remember while watching him throughout the movie, I was like, he is too clued in for someone who supposedly walks in here knowing nothing but <laughs> also i had the moment because you know like i said i haven't seen this movie in a while when i first thought i thought that rupert was a high school like uh, like i thought he was like maybe like a prep school like person a person i knew from prep school who had become a detective or something and then watching the movie yes, back, i was like i was like he's like a detective <laughs> it's like he's not a detective he's supposed no. to be just like a civilian but like he's he's clued in and he's making he like he is on the case like Columbo. he's drawing connections <laughs> and it starts when he comes in and he's like hmm david's not here yet you say all right it's like that's the beginning of it and then like anything well, that I heard happens it was gonna come does anybody know the whereabouts of david it seems like rupert is always starting the conversation about where david is and also like there'll be a moment like he'll like like philip will literally like fart and like rupert will like look over at him with a first crowd like hmm so like somebody had some beans earlier today maybe after a fresh kill and it's like or just beans 
Um, but what he's just mean, like, it's like if you were a real human person who didn't, who like didn't always think your friends were guilty of murder, you would never put these pieces together. Do you think that like OJ's friends are always on their toes around him? <laughs> Isn't he in jail? Or is he out? Oh, is he? Ortho? I don't know. Call Chloe, ask her. Um, so, also, I think it's interesting because in the play, it is these two characters are apparently, Philip and Brandon, it's more explicitly that they are gay. And yeah. also, Rupert is gay, which I think is really interesting. Um, oh, Rupert's I... gay in the play. And I think it's yeah. really interesting to think about these three characters as all being representatives of of the queer world because then we've got like this older gay who is like you know yes. it's like an indictment of like the gay youth then in a way it's like yeah. how'd you take the ideas that I purported to have and twist them around to make some sort of like reality for yourselves it's like born from the blood of like good people you know what I mean like I feel like there's right. another way to look at it that's really interesting that um, is incredibly interesting I also thought like oh this is interesting to have more representation of different gay people within this like small dinner party or this play because then it's like okay not the only people who are gay in this in this scenario are the murderers you know what I mean but one of them is trying to do a good thing you know so it, like it brings on a little more like okay maybe we're not this isn't a commentary about gay people that could and be how we're all just fucking hopeless murderers. Although, also the thing yeah, we have not love, mentioned who yet. Love a good dinner party. That's not <laughs> guilty. <laughs> um, the thing that I that they don't mention is that this case is this movie is loosely is based on that play that is loosely based on the story of Leopold and Loeb, who were also believed to be two gay men who killed a fourteen year old boy. Um, yeah. in Chicago. Shout out to Chi-Town. <laughs> Always. Chi-Town stand up. I I hadn't heard about this case until this movie, and I was looking into it, but um, apparently it's part and of our was, city's legacy. So. And that was in 1924. <laughs> oh, you've never heard about Leopold yeah. and Lowe before? No, I don't think oh. so. Unless, like, it's... Yeah, you need to find I, a good I, Leopold I, and Lowe doc to watch. Oh, um, I would totally watch it. I didn't know that existed, but it I'm sounds sure like... There, oh, no, it's like a really famous case. But I don't know a lot about it in all of, in you know, even though I'm a big true crime head. But we should um, look into that, Janie. Yeah, I'm I'm pulling it up so I remember. Absolutely. Well, the best part, I think, the movie for me, like the the climax, is when Rupert comes back and he pretends he's left his cigarette case. Which, by the way, this is a beautiful gold cigarette case that I would love to have. And um, if someone could get it for me, I don't smoke cigarettes, um, but I just want it. So please find it for me at some point. What are you whispering? I was just thinking about how I want to tackle a little bit of. Um, Rupert's speech at the end of the movie. I cannot believe that you just thought of that now because I was thinking as we were talking, I was like, I can't believe Brandon doesn't want to do that monologue. Yeah. This is such a good moment where it's finally revealed that they murder David, Rupert knows, Brandon knows, and um, Philip knows, and they're and. and 
he's wrestled a gun out of Brandon's hand, or sorry, out of um, Philip's hands. Mm -hmm. And he's now got them where he wants them. Rupert has them, you know, sort of in his power while he's figuring out what to do. And he gives this whole speech to to Brandon. Okay. Remember when we said the lives of inferior beings are unimportant? Remember, we said, we've always said, you and I, that the moral concepts of good and evil and right and wrong don't hold for the intellectually and superior. Remember, Rupert? Yes, I remember. Well, that's all we've done, Rupert. That's all Philip and I have done. He and I have lived what you and I have talked. I knew you'd understand because you have to. Don't you see? You have to. You have thrown my words in my face, Brandon. You were right to. If nothing else, a man should stand by his words. But you have thrown the sound of reasoning at me and not reason itself. You have given my words a a meaning I, I never dreamed of. You have tried to twist them into a cold, logical expulse for your ugly murder. They never were that, Brandon. And you can't make them that. There must have been something deep in you from the very first to let you do this thing. But there's always been something deep in me that could never let me do it or be a party to it now. What do you mean? I mean, tonight, you have made me ashamed of every concept I have ever heard of superior or inferior beings. But I thank you for that shame, because now I know the truth. And the truth is that humanity cannot be divided into categories to suit our own ends. We are such of us a human being, Brandon, with a right to live and work and think as individuals. Yes, but with an obligation to the society we live in. By what right do you dare say there is a superior few to which you belong? By what right do you dare decide that, my boy, was inferior and could therefore be killed? Did you think you were God, Brandon? Is that what you thought when you choked the life out of him? Is that what you thought when you set food from his grave? I don't know what you thought you would do it or what you are, but I do know what you've done. You've murdered. You've strangled a fellow human being who could live and laugh and love as you never could, and you never will now. What are you doing? It's not what I'm doing, Brandon. It's what society's gonna do. What that will be, I don't know. But I can guess, and I can help. You're gonna die, Brandon. Both of you. You're gonna die. Same. (laughs) 
I Oof. knew somehow we were going to turn this <laughs> into us trying to do Jimmy Stewart questions for the whole I didn't know what we were going through, but it was a lot of fun. It's, I harder for me to ta- it's easier for me to tap into it when I'm not reading a script. I know. I, and, and the excuses will, I'm sure, continue to come, of course. But... <laughs> Was it Just horrible? Kidding. Was no, it really no, it was, no, no, no. It was really good, and I was laughing very hard, which made me hard to okay. get. Like I was trying to be. Our quiet, listeners are going to be like, listeners, let us know what you think um, of our JS, ta- our takes yeah. on JS, please. And if you want, and if you want, like we'll do it more. You know, oh, absolutely. It, it doesn't have to be an episode about Jimmy Stewart or like about a movie that Jimmy Stewart's in. We can do it at any time. So, it is like, like it is. Do not hold back. If you don't like it. Also, we would love to know who's better too. That's important for oh, us, right? That. Yeah. Always. So if if you think my impression is better, or if Brandon's impression is better, if you think my better. impression's better, and you think I've really nailed Jimmy Stewart, don't have well, any qualms about letting Jane know. Well, She's if you loser. think I've hit the nail on the head with my Jimmy Stewart impression, I'd be happy to know that wasn't. Or great. if you think Jane sounds more like Kathy Hepburn, that's cool too. <laughs> the problem is, is that I have a very feminine voice, and so it's hard. You know, it's Here hard you to go get down there. Feminine. You love. <laughs> I hate it. I hate. I hate the binary. I'm not a big fan of it. Um, but anyways, I do love at the end of this his big speech. He does sort of learn the lesson and and tell it Didn't to you kind us. Kind of like roll your eyes a little bit though. It's like the it one part heavy, that I kind it was heavy handed. Because it's a little. <laughs> Here's the thing. Okay, the thing is that like we get a scene in this movie which we did not reenact, so you're welcome. Um, where the they're one. <laughs> where they're discussing like this idea of like Nietzsche and like the you know the with the Superman and all this stuff and like this idea of there being like this person who exists on like a higher plane of existence that has like the right to sort of like you know take the life of another human being because of their intellectual superiority and like jimmy stewart is basically sort of he's saying that he agrees with this philosophy and he's saying he agrees with it and then we have mr kentley who is david's father who's like saying he strongly disagrees with it and then we have brandon who is like the stan of all stands for this theory that he clearly learned from rupert and we see rupert seeing the way that like brandon is sort of debating with kentley about their different stances and we see in that moment Rupert sort of almost take a little bit of a step back realizing like the real world impact of it and seeing the ways that it has like emboldened Brandon just in terms of this conversation like whoa 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 and in then terms of this end, conversation but also he has this he's already his suspicions is up so he's like has he applied this philosophy in a way that is harmful and, and can so this be harmful? harmful? And it's really interesting, but it's super interesting to think about what we were talking about, about these three characters being queer, which as I was reading it, I thought how interesting that it's like, it feels coded in a way too. It does. We have those moments where Brandon says, remember those conversations we've always had, you and I, about the moral concepts of good and evil and right and wrong, um, and that they hold over the, you know, the in, of us, quote unquote, intellectually superiors, whatever yes. that's coded to mean, but the right that we all have, that we have as the certain type of person that we are like what kind of freedom that gives us to like take Mm -hmm. on the world and it feels very like thinking about it through this queer lens it's like 
totally. It's really yeah. interesting to think about it and him have to be like, no, that's that's not, or you taking it too far. It's what it feels like is it feels like too tidy of a resolution. Not him like finding out that they murdered and then contacting authorities, but like him sort of like backtracking in the way. This is an older man who has this philosophy for life that he has been purporting to have up to this point. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden he realizes they killed someone and then he's like, never mind, I take it all back. I can't believe you actually took me at my word. I don't mean it. And it's like, yeah, it seems like huh? irresponsible because it seems irresponsible on the part of Rupert because he also has this conversation earlier in the evening, times where he thinks murder is okay. And it's all very tongue in cheek, right? But yeah. he's realizing that like the impact of what he's saying is now like caused Brandon and, you know, Philip hopped on that bandwagon as well to commit this murder of their friend and so he's sort of like having this moment and then like this is where this like speech comes from which I agree is like a bit heavy handed but at the same time like I always think like that subtlety that we are so used to or like need right now within film and you know television I don't think we're I don't think that was as much of a requirement back in 1948 when this movie was made. And so I think it is of its time. If this dialogue was used in a movie today, I would be like, what? Like, let me get there. You know what I mean? It feels like they're trying to really put a, yeah, you're right. They're trying to put like a bow on it kind of and like tidy up and like, we know it's wrong. No, we know that he's been talking that shit, but we know it's wrong. And we need to let you know that he knows it's wrong, dude. This is our hero. Right, exactly, exactly. And the subtlety, you know, there there is no subtlety in this movie, particularly, like, when... Brandon is trying to be subtle about his little quips and um, you know, dropping little hints that he's a fucking murderer and Philip literally coming undone in every corner of every room. Like, that's not subtle either. So it makes sense that this conclusion is also not subtle. Also, the thing we didn't talk about, the other thing, which is kind of a big thing in this movie, the name of the movie, Rope. There's a rope that they use to strangle David in the first scene. And then, like, Brandon's obsessed with this rope. I mean, they're called trophies now by, you know, serial killers. But Brandon's (laughs) obsessed with it. And, like, he keeps bringing it out. And then at the end of the night, David obviously never showed up to the party because he was already there. Um, And there are some books that that was was why he has all the books out of the trunk is because he he had books that he wanted David's father to look through so before mr kentley leaves he picks like seven or eight books and then david i'm sorry and then brandon ties the rope around the books to hold them together and yeah, then he you get literally a shot gives him the murder weapon brandon's face with this grin on it as he's like giving like this these bundled books that are bundled with the rope that like killed his son to Sick. you know his father and like you see philip about to piss himself and it's just like the rope that keeps coming back and then when jimmy stewart comes back up to the apartment after everybody leaves they all leave really quickly together mm-hmm. jimmy stewart comes back up because he allegedly left his uh, cigarette case and he pulls the rope out of his pocket as well mm-hmm. and that's the moment that philip like loses it and then philip pulls a gun out the gun that 
there's a gun that's on the piano that earlier Brandon had in his pocket and Rupert questioned him about. And he's like, oh, we're going to the farm. I just was putting it on me as a provision. And so he puts it on the piano to show the fact that, like, this gun doesn't mean anything. I'm not dangerous. And then Philip freaks out and grabs the gun and then Jimmy Stewart wrestles it from him. And during the scene, as Jimmy Stewart's wrestling the gun from him, which is about 20 seconds, it's, it's complete silence. Lot. It's yeah. completely silent. Like you said earlier, the silence yeah. in this movie. Because nobody's making a noise. As this no. wrestling is happening, you can kind of hear the breathing of the actors but that's yeah, it it's completely it. silent no nobody's screaming nobody's it's like stop it give it to me eerie Nothing. moment it's a it's very really eerie creepy. moment and yeah. the fact that brandon like that no point in the scene which may be a script thing more than anything but nobody tries to like overpower rupert and it's yeah. two of them and it's really interesting either because they don't think they can they think it's gonna really turn into a fuck around and find out situation mm-hmm. or something like that but nobody tries to overpower him and he ultimately gets the gun and also at the end of the movie the way that he signals for the cops to come he doesn't go to the phone he opens the window and he lets out three shots into the air and that is the signifier for like neighbors to like sort of like people on the lower floor you can hear people on the ground floor sort of murmurs happening everybody's like what's going on and it's really it's really that's actually my favorite part of the movie I think besides it's that shot where you watch um, Mrs. Wilson um, almost open the trunk and then this shot where like after he fires off the shot, it's silent in the room. All you can hear the neighbors downstairs talking about like, oh, we should call the police. What was that? Blah, blah, blah. And Philip and Brandon and Rupert are just standing there waiting. Just waiting. And the movie ends before, you know, Rupert they're arrested goes and or whatever. Rupert almost like almost like like he's watching like he's watch over a grave. He pulls his chair up next to the trunk. Because yeah. he's looked in the trunk earlier, so he's finally gotten the confirmation that there's a body in there, and he sits uh-huh. next to the trunk, almost like he's holding watch over it, while holding the gun, and... Philip goes over to the piano, which we've seen him play several times in the movie when he's getting mm-hmm. really, really anxious. He goes to the piano and he starts playing the piano quietly. And then Brandon just starts making a cocktail. Yeah. And they're all, it's all, it's the, and you it's, can hear that's the, so it's, you can hear the impending like sirens as they get closer from the ambulance and you can hear like the people on the street and you can see all of sort of the Manhattan city lights of nighttime flashing. And it's just them sitting in front of this cityscape out the window and it's quiet and this is just, they've resigned themselves to whatever their fate will be. Probably not much considering that yeah. they're rich and white, but um, <laughs> they can keep that gay thing unlocked then maybe they'll be okay. But exactly. it's all like, it's all just <laughs> unfolding in this really like wild way. It's just like, what an ending. It's a great ending. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful ending. And it's a great yeah. movie. So Jane, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, will you watch this movie again? Absolutely. I will watch it again. I'm happy that you enjoyed it. That makes me really happy. Yeah. Um, and then my second question for you is, there was a rumor has it. Rumor has it. That you, you, you and Del have been talking about it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Always. I'm trying to get her mm-hmm. to listen to the podcast. She's busy with some other stuff, though, right now. Yeah, she had a couple things going on. What? But I don't know. But Me neither. It's like, what do you do? You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Not music videos, apparently. You just stop at two for each album. Um, but, Jane, do you have a movie for me to watch next week? I do. And since you brought us to, you know, sort of a highbrow, classy place. I thought I would continue the tradition because that's what I love to do as well. Um, Just a real level of just high art. 
Um, and as you know, as, as many of our listeners know, I've started a lot of franchises, you know, and really we've only seen Twilight through where we've gone back and gone back and gone back. And I wanted to go back again to one of the franchises that I've started, um, and you all, you know, have seemed to enjoy. And I know, Brandon, you enjoyed it too. So we're going to go ahead and continue on with the story of Bridget Jones. And we oh. are going to watch Bridget Jones to the Edge of Reason. Okay. So that is what's on deck for you next week. Jane's been edging me for days. I, I was so <laughs> prepared for her to tell me that we were either going to go back to the Hunger Games mm. or we were going to go back to the family. And I was going to get Too Fast, Too Furious, which I... Yeah. She knows how bad I want it and she just won't I give know. it to me. I know. And With I want family. <laughs> we... Trust me. All... All will be resolved. All. Um, I don't know his last name. Everything started will be finished. All right. So we're going to take a trip back. I actually, for some reason, when you said that, I thought we'd watch this movie. I've never seen it, but for some reason, when you said it, I was like, oh, we've watched this one. No, no, we have not. So we'll pick up with old Bridgie's journey. And we'll see what's going on with her and those two men whose names I don't remember. Exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you. Are Are they white in the second movie, too? Everybody's white in the, all okay. the movies. Just making sure. <laughs> Close one. Um, yeah. So okay, we're gonna take a little trip back to Bridget's world. This is Bridget Jones' The Edge of Reason. Yes, Bridget Jones two. Bridget Jones' Diary two. The Edge of Reason. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Brandon, for um, talking to me about the movie Rope. Thank you for choosing it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It's been a great chat. Hopefully, you've enjoyed it as well. Um, if you want to continue to keep in touch with us, feel free <laughs> to find us on social media. I know you guys are on there. You're on there. Let them know. We're on Let there. Them know. At Movies We Missed on Instagram and Facebook. And, of course, our award-winning Twitter at MWM Chat. And we appreciate you. We love you. And we will see you next week for Bridget Jones 2, Electric The Edge Boogaloo. of Reason. Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Close. Okay. Anyways. All right. Love you. Bye. Bye. Jazz. Let the people go. Let my people go. Like, we'll do it more.